this episode is sponsored by Janae Ledger Life Coach. I am a certified relationship and life coach. And if you're seeking to feel more clarity in your decision making, feel happier in life, feeling more motivated, and really feel good about how you show up because you're doing things that matter, definitely send me a DM. I would love to do a value sort with you. And what you will get out of a value sort is gaining that clarity, feeling confident how you make your decisions. You know, before I actually got to know what my values are, I was feeling, you know, really understanding why I made some decisions that I had chosen and not really understanding why I need words of affirmation. And after going through the process of finding my values, I now feel fulfilled. I am understanding why I make my decisions and also very much understanding how and why I feel motivated to do certain things. So again, if you would like to do a value sort with me, I am doing a special offer right now. The first three people to message me values will get a free session of value sorting with me and two follow-up coaching sessions. Please DM me values on Instagram or my email and I look forward to connecting with you. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of My Naked Mindset. I'm your host Janae Ledger. This is episode number 115. Welcome. I hope you guys are having a kick-ass awesome summer. I hope you guys have been enjoying the episodes. I would love for you to do me a favor and help support the podcast, which is leaving a review, subscribing so you don't miss an episode, leaving a five-star review. I would totally appreciate that. And mention me in your stories and, you know, a post if you'd like and really be able to showcase the podcast and definitely tag me. I so appreciate it. It's how I keep the podcast going. So again, thank you so, so much for being so supportive. I am very excited about our guest today. So let me introduce you to her. She is a sex therapist and registered psychologist. She is also the co-founder and co-director of the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy in Vancouver. Everyone, please welcome Dr. Carolyn Klein to the show. All right, everyone. I have Carolyn here with me. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm as excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So I would love to hear what are you most excited about that's coming up in your life? (laughs) Uh, That was until five minutes ago, this podcast. But, um, (laughs) you know, I would say that there's just a whole bunch of things this summer from a friend's wedding party to taking my eight-year-old daughter camping, uh, to just being in the sunshine. So lots of good stuff coming up. Love that. Love that. Summertime is just, it's so enjoyable. I love it so much. So that's very, very exciting. Um, So you have quite an impressive background. I would love to know kind of how you got into, you know, the sex therapy psychologist like realm. Like how did you get into this work? Yeah, a combination of curiosity and fluke. Um, So there's the two parts, the curiosity. I think I was always interested in sexuality. And I think that's true for so many sex therapists. They'll say that. Um, I remember as a kid not knowing what was going on and my parents saying, stop touching yourself, kind of an idea as I was exploring my body. And as a teenager in high school with my friends, them saying, you know, we don't have to talk all the time about sex. And I was just curious about a lot. But I had no idea of of the field of sex therapy. So I ended up uh, in university in my undergrad taking a first year uh, psychology course. And I thought psychology was just really fascinating. And so I went Mm. and spoke to the professor near the end of the year and said, well, if I wanted to be in psychology, what would I have to do? And he said, well, you have to start volunteering in research labs so that you can get into a master's and PhD program. And I said, well, do you have room in your lab? And his lab happened to be a sex research lab. And from there, I was like, wow, this is so interesting. Uh, And the research just got more and more interesting as I learned about it. So a bit of curiosity and a bit of total fluke. Well, I love that too, because I think, yeah, like I can totally agree. I've talked with obviously so many sex coaches and sex therapists and um, 
I think that it's so, it is really cool to hear everyone's kind of different story and kind of how they came about this, this environment and this work, because it is true. Like a lot of us were curious at, you know, a young age or mm-hmm. some people that I found like they grew up in like a very sex negative environment. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it almost pushed them to be like, okay, well, why? And kind of getting other people's experiences and learning and being like, okay, well, why was, why did I get brought up? So, you know, in a negative sex environment. And I find that obviously super fascinating. I obviously love talking about sex too. So I think it is a really, it's really interesting to hear everyone's like different story. Um, So Mm -hmm. let me ask you this. Did you Mm -hmm. grow up in a sex positive environment? (laughs) Uh, I grew up in a, um, my parents were doing their best not to be sex negative. So I'll tell a quick story. So my my mother was born and raised in Colombia, which is a very Catholic conservative country. And she was raised by my grandmother, Gertrude. And I always say my grandmother's name is true to her because you never meet an exotic dancer named Gertrude. So my grandmother, Gertrude, was incredibly conservative so conservative that she believed that you don't ever talk about sex or bodies. So when my mother as a young uh, preteen got her period, my mother thought she was bleeding out. She didn't even know what a period was. And so my mother has all these horrible stories um, of what her misinformation led her to. So when my parents had my sister and I, my mother didn't know how to talk about sex growing up in such a conservative upbringing, but they bought one of those books and just left it on the shelf for my sister and I to discover. And the funny story is that one year my grandmother Gertrude came to visit and when she left, she didn't leave alone because that book was never seen again. She must have taken it and burnt it. She saw it on the shelf and got rid of it and it was never spoken about. So my parents tried their best. And at the same time, you know, when I was young and exploring my body, you know, not even knowing that that's masturbation, just just exploring. My parents definitely were putting a stop to that and were saying stop that because they came from such a conservative background but they were trying very hard not to be that way. And as I got into this field, my parents were amazing. Um, And my dad was even helping out with some of the research with his product development company, building some of the things we used in our research labs and stuff. So they were fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, I always like to hear just like kind of the background of people's like upbringings, just because I find it, yeah, it's so interesting. And I think a lot of people that I've heard personally have, have, even like the sex ed, and I kind of want to get into that in a little bit, but it was very, you know, shame-based, abstinent-based. Oh, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to get an STI, stuff like that. So it's definitely, I think that our our sex education, I mean, at least here in the U.S., like could be well, you know, well-versed and I think could use a lot of changes personally, but I could go, go I off. I couldn't on agree change. more. Yes, I couldn't agree yeah. more that our sex education is teaching more people about fear and shame than it is about positive sexuality. Yes, nailed it right on the head. Um, so that kind of brings us to one of the topics that I know you're very passionate about, which is sexual fantasies. I'm super excited to hear about this. Um, I mean, I feel like, that, I guess my first thing is, does everyone have sexual fantasies? Well, the answer to that is a little bit complicated because, of course, it's hard to get people involved in sex research who are very conservative. So you were always kind of recognizing that the people who who engage in sex research studies may be a more skewed sample uh, and already more sexually open. And we also now are recognizing that there are people who identify as asexual and that they may not have sexual fantasies, although some people with asexuality also do. So um, what I would say is that sexual fantasies are incredibly normal, and we would definitely be very comfortable saying the vast majority of people have them in one form or another. And all you have to do is look at the sales of anything from you know, of women's romance novels to Fifty Shades of Grey to uh, people looking on Pornhub to know that people are having a lot of sexual fantasies. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because like everyone, I feel like, like I could definitely think of some that I've had and like even like, yeah, like you just said books. I have been reading Colleen Hoover books right now and they are, I don't know if you've ever read any of them, but they are super sexual. And like some of the chapters are like, very in-depth and I'm like oh my god like this is so hot like it is it is really it's kind of like a like I did this episode on um 
erotic audio which is also something that's very very intriguing and I mean that's kind of like a you know sexual fantasy you're listening to it like you can kind of like picture whatever or visualize whatever you want but yeah I find it like the the reading of a book is like really really kind of awesome to to really like all of the details and it's just like then you kind of can visualize it yourself so I'm not that's very, very interesting and kind of like a different way to maybe masturbate or self-pleasure or whatever. Kind of get yourself in the mood. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do individuals typically develop sexual fantasies? Oh, that is a great question. Um, and it's one that I would say that we don't have a ton of great research on, on how they develop them. Um, there are definitely a few things we can throw in the mix. The first thing I always like to say, because, you know, for me, it's not even that sexual fantasies are my passion. It's that sexual shame and overcoming shame is my passion. And I'm just watching so many people have a lot of shame about their sexual fantasies, their desires. So that's why sexual fantasies are pretty important to me. And the big thing that I always say to people is that sex is how adults play. And, you know, my daughter's now eight years old, but whenever she plays, she never plays that she is the eight-year-old daughter of a psychologist. (laughs) She Mm. never plays that she is who she is. She plays all the things that she is not because that is where she gets to be creative in her mind. So sometimes she's the warrior princess and sometimes she's the Kung Fu fighter and sometimes she's the, you know, mean teacher with 30 horrible students and whatever her play is. And so if sex is how adults play, I'm trying to always let people know that our fantasies are our chance for our brain to be creative. And we tend to think about all the things that are not our real life. So if I, for example, have a 40-year-old mother come into my office with three young children who are hanging off her, I already know that her sexual fantasies don't involve soft touch of like the kind that kids put on her face. She's going to have the fantasy of being thrown on the bed and having her hair pulled and her clothes ripped off of her because she's going to need something that's so different than what she already has. So sometimes our sexual fantasies really develop along the lines of what is not in our life. And definitely want to credit here the work of Dr. Justin Lay Miller and his book, Tell Me What You Want, and and his fascinating research where he was, you know, he, he really found his research was done in the United States. And he really found that Republicans who often have quite conservative sexuality, uh, you know, a lot of like uh, monogamy is really idolized. And so there's not a lot around swinging or around infidelity and cheating and cuckolding and all this. But what does he find in the research that the Republicans are having even more of those fantasies? Because as soon as we're told we're not supposed to want something, then that's what we want, even if we don't act on it. And same thing, his research on group sex, you know, that it's not the 20 year olds who are always fantasizing about the gangbang and the threesome. It's the 40 year olds who've now been in their monogamous relationship for 15, 20 years, whatever it might be, who are like, I need something different than the one partner I've had over and over. And it doesn't mean people want to act on it. You know, again, it's entertainment. The TV shows we watch, most of those, we don't want those to be real life, like CSI, Special Victims Unit. But it gets our heart pumping, which is what we need for arousal. It's entertaining, and it's not our everyday real life. No one wants to watch TV of people mopping the floor. So in terms of what makes our sexual fantasies develop, they can change over time. And they're usually going to be things that we don't already have in our day-to-day life. And I can already predict that when my clients come in, if they've got, you know, a pretty structured life, their fantasies are going to be nice and wild. I love this. This is, this is so intriguing to me too, because it's like, it, it is the way to be creative and like, well, what, it, like, what have I seen and what have I been like? maybe you saw something like you just said, like shows, or maybe you're watching porn. You're like, holy shit, I've never thought about that. Like, maybe I should try that. And then like your brain kind of goes wild. And also, I don't know if this is kind of coincides with it, but sex dreams, I always find super fascinating too. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or experienced this, but I have specifically had sex dreams with celebrities. And I don't know why. Super, super weird. Like, not even celebrities that I'm like super into or like attracted to, but like for an example, this is so, this is so funny. And I don't even know why I'm bringing this up. I think it's hysterical. I had a dream that I had sex with Scott Disick, which is like one of the Kardashian, like (laughs) baby daddies. And I'm like, why? I wonder why I had sex with him out of all of the people that I like in the celebrity world, super random. Um, I don't know if you, if you have any, if that kind of, coincides with our fantasies with sex dreams do you have any insight well, on that? 
And of course, if you ask, you know, five different psychologists what they think of <laughs> dreams, you're going to get five different answers. So my answer is going to be mine and not every other psychologist. But I always say to my clients who ask about dreams, whether they're sexual dreams or non-sexual, as I say, you know, you have to recognize that the brain is still very active when we're sleeping. We just don't get the filter on it. We don't get to choose to focus on our work and what we're going to make for dinner. So your brain in that moment is going wild and just being incredibly creative and it's putting together little pieces. Maybe you, you were watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. So Scott Disick was in your mind and then you had sex in your mind and something else. And it kind of mashes them all together because we all have such bizarre dreams, whether those are nightmares or just like, you know, you roll over the next day and you're your partner like, I have the weirdest dream. So why wouldn't sex makes it make its way into that as well? So I'm not surprised and I don't make a lot of meaning out of that other than that your brain just couldn't filter and it's taking in all the stuff that you've kind of had going on and putting it all together into some twisted story. Interesting. That is so fascinating. Um, like, and also I think another part of this too, like if you have a sexual fantasy and you really want to try it out with your partner and maybe you're a little hesitant to talk about it with your partner, do you have a good way to kind of introduce a sexual fantasy to a partner? Yeah. Great question. I mean, Hopefully, the first step might not be to introduce your wildest sexual fantasy if you're not sure where your partner sits on that. And because so many people are not educated on the fact that fantasies do not necessarily mean we want to carry them out, you know, just like, again, the TV shows we watch don't mean that that's what we want in our everyday life. There are those fantasies that we do want to explore, and there are those fantasies that just get our heart racing and blood moving to our genitals in a really effective way. Um, and they're they're great fantasies because they're so taboo and we know we'd never act on them. So my hope is that people would first be able to talk to their partners about like how much focus do they put on fantasies and do they sort of recognize that this is sometimes like watching a movie. It's something to share and have a laugh over or get hot over, but it doesn't ne necessarily mean you want to act on it. If you've got already that comfort, then it is easy to share a fantasy and to say, you know, always kind of been intrigued by this. I don't know if that sounds kind of crazy because I know that's not who I am in everyday life, but I think that's why it intrigues me. What do you think? So that people don't take it so literally that it means something about them. That's where I see the fear. You know, my clients will come in sometimes as a couple and once in a while they'll say, oh my God, my partner's fantasizing about this. What does that mean? Because they're like, this is not who I thought my partner was. But that's like saying, what does it mean when my partner dresses up as whatever on Halloween? I mean, these are, again, the places that we play. So I think the first step is the foundation that our fantasies don't mean that much about us, other than that they're so different from what we usually are in life. And we may or may not want to start to play around with actually experiencing them. Wow. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. And I think it is like, don't try not to think about it so negatively. Like, oh, my God, if, what if my my partner's fantasy is so crazy like you said and something that you would never imagine doing but kind of just think about it as like you know that's in their head that's okay that's it's in probably mostly I mean maybe there's sexual fantasies that are unhealthy and I'm sure that there are but thinking about it in a light of it's it's in their head they don't act on it it's something that is just kind of creative in their own brain and maybe they want to try it out but maybe they don't and I think I think being open to with like if your partner feels and they you know they should feel comfortable enough to express that to you then take that as wow they felt comfortable enough to share that part of them and be vulnerable right I think that that might be a whole other factor of it as well. Well I think that yeah you're hitting on such some really good points and one of those is it's so interesting to me as a sex therapist how many people call sex intimacy and yet it's the least intimate thing they do and when I sit down with a couple I'll often say okay so do you know how your partner masturbates and when they last masturbated and what they masturbated to and the vast majority of my couples they look at me like oh why would I need to know that isn't that like this private behavior and yet they're calling this intimacy they know all about when their partner wants to retire and where they want to go for retirement, but they have no clue what they actually are interested in sexually. And I always think then, well, how do you expect to have a great sexual relationship if you can't really be intimate? So I, I agree with you. Real intimacy would be that we can say, yeah, honey, just like the, the dream, right? Like lots of people have no qualms saying, listen to this fucked up dream that I had last night. But most people aren't like, listen to this crazy fantasy I got off on yesterday. Most people are like, oh, no, my partner will judge me for it. And then I think the other piece is, 
if we're afraid of what our partners will say, recognizing that probably also comes because you may have a fear yourself of what would your partner say if you had it. So, you know, for women, again, we know the vast majority of women will have what are often called rape fantasies, which is not a great word for it, because of course, it's not rape, it's it's a consensual non-consent fantasy, where they get to make up what that person looks like, they're not some stinky person, you know, uh, they get to make up what happens and for how long. And so recognizing that, or same thing, I can't find a book on fantasies that doesn't have an incest fantasy in it. And yet most people would never want that to actually be true with their actual family family member, because when they imagine it, it's never with their family member. So it's recognizing again that we all have those fantasies that sound strange on the surface, but once you recognize that it's kind of like we've got the Cohen brothers in our brain coming up with crazy twisted stuff to be super creative, that then we actually embrace it and say, okay, that's kind of cool that your brain lets you do all these crazy things in your mind. Yeah, yeah no, I love that. And I love when you said like, like sex is not intimacy. It, that's not the most intense intimacy that we have, right? And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people kind of, have a misconception of that too like I find a lot of a lot of people that I talk to are like oh well that's no it's different it's 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 totally totally different yeah if I can just jump on that I'm gonna kind of try not take us too far on a tangent but same thing I constantly hear people saying to me well but sex is bonding and I always say well no it's not because people who get raped do not think of it as bonding (laughs) and a lot of the couples coming into my office their sex is not bonding it's leading to sadness and shame and disconnection so sex itself is not a bonding activity just like dinner itself is not a bonding activity it depends on the intention and the amount of vulnerability, the amount that you're curious about the other person and non-judgmental. So I always say there's no behavior that itself is bonding. It depends how we go about doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, now, if someone is ashamed of their fantasy, maybe is there some steps that they can work towards to kind of make that better, you know, get through that, move, move through that? Yeah. Yeah. The very first thing I would say is if you like to read my top two book recommendations for that would be Justin Lay Miller's Tell Me What You Want and uh, the book A Billion Wicked Thoughts. And I'm worried I'm going to butcher the two authors names, but uh, both of those books are fantastic because they really normalize sexual fantasies. And whenever I have clients read those books, they're like, whoa, okay, I, you know, I'm only having this like 1% of these and there's like this other 99% that I'm not, oh, guess I'm not that weird after all. And so just for us, because we live in a society that doesn't speak openly, if you don't have a circle of friends and partner and whatever around you where you where they already role model talking openly, then at least get these books and at least be like seeing that these are based on real data. This is not fiction. And I've just found that then suddenly people are like, I guess I'm not that abnormal. And I guess it is kind of like I'm not ashamed of the TV shows I watch and the social media stuff I look at. So why would I be ashamed of this sexual fantasy stuff? It's all again, just entertainment. That would be my first step. No, I love that. And just really make like normalizing it. Right. And yeah. and that's like a perfect way to is kind of reading these books. And I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with reading lately. I've read like 10 books. I'm on, I'm reading my 11th and 12th book this year. Um, wow, so I am, thank you. I'm a huge proponent of reading and just learning new things and feeling comfortable, like hoping to feel comfortable after reading those books, like you said, like, oh, okay, maybe this is a normal thought. And hey, maybe this is a little weird, but it's okay. It's normal. It's, it's fine to feel these feelings of, you know, oh, is, why do I have so much shame around this? So absolutely. And that is actually a perfect segue into our next uh, topic, which is all about sexual shame. I know this is another topic that you said that you were very passionate about speaking on. So I would love to kind of break down like maybe defining sexual shame and how it can really manifest in our thoughts? Mm, Yeah, great question. So, I mean, shame is often, and and sometimes people will distinguish guilt and shame, that guilt is something that we experience when we don't feel good about a certain behavior. And shame is when we don't feel good about ourselves. We think there's something wrong with us. And definitely with sexuality, we right now live in a culture and a society that shames sexuality. And I'll just give a little example of that from my own life. It was so interesting to me. Um, About a year ago, I was uh, going to be giving a big talk as part of an inspirational summit. And so the day before I had to go for microphone check to the theater, 
And I, it just happened to be the day that I have to pick up my daughter and her best friend after school to drive them. So I dragged them with me to the theater for microphone check. And they sat in the empty theater in the rows of seats while I did microphone check. And when I was down done, I called them up and said, time to go. And my daughter very sweetly said, oh, I wish I could come and see you speak tomorrow. And I said, I think you'd be really bored. And she said, because you're going to talk about sex all day. And her little friend right away jumped in and said, isn't that inappropriate? And my daughter, of course, had the best answer. She said, no, sex for adults can be really healthy. And I was so proud of her. But the point is that this, you know, seven-year-old child has already learned that to even say, oh, because you're going to talk about sex all day, we're not even getting into anything nitty gritty, that right away the response was, isn't that inappropriate? And I always say, when we don't say anything about it, we're actually saying something loud and clear that it's not okay, that it's not all right. Um, and similarly, I was recently having a conversation with someone where I was talking about, you know, we, we teach our kids nowadays a little bit better than we used to some of the real terminology. I see less of, of little cute names for genitals and I see more still too much vagina, not enough vulva for a lot of yeah. misnaming, but I still never see other kids know what their clitoris is. Mm. And I think that that's really interesting that we still think it's inappropriate. I was speaking to another mother. She said, well, I, I wouldn't, why does she need to know that? And I said, well, why does she need to know what her uvula is? Like, why does she need to know what her elbow is? Why do we think that this part they don't need to know about? And then I'm talking to my 15 year old niece and she's saying, well, I kind of know what it is, but not much. And she's at the age where most people are already having sex. And the risk is that she is going to have sex that is not for her own pleasure that is for the pleasure of others. And she is going to be the last to know about her body and what feels good. And I did a post recently on Instagram where I was saying that if we don't tell kids that sex should feel good, how do they know to stop it when it doesn't? So this is like really dear to my heart that people actually start teaching their kids about the clitoris. And it doesn't have to be in the form of saying, you know, this is the part you're going to really want to rub and get your partners to rub. That's not what I mean by it. But for example, when my daughter has a bath, I do say to her, okay, make sure you wash your whole vulva, your labia, your clitoris and everything. She knows that part. And when she once asked me, like, what is it? I said, well, it's a part of your body that has lots of nerve endings. So it's a part that sometimes can feel really, really good or it can feel really, really sensitive. These are just ways that we can talk yeah. openly because otherwise there's still this shame. And I don't want my daughter to have the shame at, you know, 15, 16, whenever she's sexual of like, what? I don't know how to make sex feel good. And I don't want her to have bad sex. Yeah. No, I love that so much. And I think, and of course, I'm not a mother, so I can't speak to this, but I've, I've heard of other people on my podcast come on and say, yeah, like, um, for example, one of my uh, guests on the podcast, she is the author of this book called The Ins and Outs of My Vagina. And it's a very, very awesome book, Karen Freeland. Um, but she also talks openly about this stuff to her, to her two sons. So they were talking about... Um, I think like tampons or something and she said hey like can you go get me a tampon and he you know brought his mom the tampon and and I mean like I said I can't speak for for parents but I really think it's like it's so important because you're right it's just a body part right it's like that is our body we should know what it's called and using the proper terminology and not using the pet names because that can just I mean I feel like that's just that can go off on a very bad whim and and then it's like okay, well, what is this action? What is this? Right. Um, totally. So yeah, sexual, sexual shame, I think is probably also like many different categories from what I understand yeah. too. There's a lot of different Absolutely. categories. Yeah. And I would say, you know, in, in my work as a sex therapist, psychologist, you know, we see people having shame right across the spectrum from, I want sex too much, to I don't want it enough from this thing that I want that must be wrong that I want it to why don't I want this thing that my partner wants you know the shame about what our bodies look like that's huge these days you know the body image piece and then the shame about sexual function am I taking too long am I not wet enough am I squirting too much it, you know it, it's kind of like nobody knows anymore that variability is okay everyone thinks that there's a right way to be sexual or how much to want sex and that's something that we've got to change by talking about it right and just being open and communicating and I think I mean it's it's funny because every time I talk about like sex with like honestly anyone like anyone who is willing to talk with me about sex I'm like let's go like if I hear someone and I'm like at a party or something and I hear someone say the word sex I instantly am like 
my ears are drawn to them. <laughs> I'm sure you're probably the same way. Um, but I mean, it's yeah, it's I guess it's sometimes hard for me to comprehend when someone is not comfortable talking about it because I'm just like, I'm just so open. So I try mm. to put myself in their shoes and say, okay, Janae, well, what if someone yeah, what if they are not comfortable and they do have so much shame? And I think that kind of corresponds with each other because if they, you know, were maybe brought up in a sex negative environment and they were told, oh, well, sex is only for one thing or, you know, it shouldn't be pleasurable or you shouldn't, you know, want it all the time. Like you were saying, like there's so many different variables to it. Um, is there like a is, is there like a common source or cause like besides the few things that you had mentioned like that that gets people to feel that way that leads to their shame you mean yes yeah I mean oh, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's one thing I think it's people's fear like I think so many parents are really well-intentioned and their belief is that if they don't talk about it, they can keep their kids innocent for longer, that if they do talk about it, that it will lead them to do it. And that's where I just think we sex educators need to get the word out that the research is really clear that children where it's not talked about, they then are less likely to talk about it when abuse is happening and that kids who actually know more are more willing to speak up are more uh, comfortable asserting themselves with their body because they, you know, again, it's that story of so many kids don't learn that their body is their own. They're told, Kate, you know, you have to show the doctor this or they're caught masturbating. No, you don't do that. And so the message is this body isn't yours. And so if someone comes along and begins abusing them, they've just learned their body is not theirs and they've learned to not talk about it and they've learned that it's bad. So when it's bad, they don't think anything strange about it. So I think part of the problem is we've got really well-meaning parents who are afraid of an outcome where the research is actually showing the exact opposite. We then of course have not just well-meaning parents, but we've got beliefs that have been passed down for a long, long time that you are going to lose your um all the things that make you a woman, for example, I mean, there's a lot more shame. It was just really interesting. I was just at a workshop last week and hearing about this research, which doesn't shock me, but it's great to see in research form that when boys lose their virginity at whatever age, they see it as like a winning of something, of coming into manhood. And when girls lose their virginity, just like the word losing your virginity, they see it as a loss of something. And it's associated with guilt and shame. And was that the conditions under which I should have lost it? And does that mean I'm less desirable? And isn't that, again, so messed up that we don't have it yet that girls are looking forward to and celebrating this idea of like moving forward in their lives and envisioning what it's like because we don't talk about it with them. And that for boys, it's a positive experience. And for girls, it's this negative experience. So some of it is just long standing shame about women's sexuality in particular, that they then are, are less desirable, they're used, all this kind of garbage. But but a lot of it is well-meaning. Right. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. When you brought up like the girls losing their virginity versus boys. And yeah, that's... I think, yeah, it sh like you said, it should be like, hopefully somewhat pleasurable. I mean, I feel like the first time is always maybe a little weird or different. You don't know what to expect. It's like, I, I definitely can remember the first time I had sex. Um, and I think just like, yeah, and I was super, I, I even remember I, it was with my high school boyfriend and I remember hiding the condom like outside somewhere because I was terrified of my parents finding out. But in the same realm, it's funny that I thought that because I had been on birth control. My mom was like, okay, well, you know, this is, this seems like a serious boyfriend. I think I'm going to put her on birth control. And my mom did the right thing. She was open about it. She was very communicative. I was communicative. So it is kind of an interesting thought that I was like so nervous about like them finding out. And now, now I'm thinking about them. Like why? I wonder why I thought that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just wonder, and I know, of course, I'm I'm incredibly on the far end of the spectrum because as a sex therapist thinking about and talking about this all the time, but I just wonder what, it, you know, would it be different if we were saying to our daughters or young people like, yeah, what do you want it to be like the first time and helping them to envision it rather than we never talk about, we never talk about. And now you have this thing and it's like this shameful experience where you didn't actually think about what you wanted. It was kind of like, well, and so many women's stories are, well, my partner kind of really wanted to, or I thought I should 
because I was getting older or, you know, it, it, for many women, it's not from a, I want to experience this. And we need to change that around because again, too many women are still having sex more for the pleasure of others than for themselves. Oh, yes. That's, that's a huge, huge topic I talk about too. It's like, like, why are you only wanting to pleasure them? Like they need to be pleasuring you too. And like expressing like, what is feeling good to you? I always say this, like letting your partner know, like what, like, okay, touch me there, rub me there, like expressing, because why would you want to have bad sex? Like we want to have good sex. And, and if you don't, and I mean, this kind of goes into it, but if you don't know what you like, how is your partner going to know what you like if you don't personally know? And that's why I'm a proponent of (laughs) self-pleasure. Yes. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Uh, It's, it's just like a cycle. And I think I think another aspect of sexual shame is like experiences that we've had, maybe not so great ones. And then we kind of hold that, like, I know you said people, you know, that have um, imbalanced libidos with their partners. This is something that I'm very fascinated about and just, and, and maybe you can give some examples of maybe uh, a couple comes into you and says, okay, well, my, you know, let's just say my husband wants sex three times a week and I I'm just really not feeling it lately. My libido is really low and I'm just not, not into it right now. Like that mismatch libido unbalanced, I guess you could say, what is some tips maybe that you, you could tell them, share with them? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And definitely that is one of the most common things that shows up in our office for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll, I'll answer your question by saying, I think first is trying to understand why one person is wanting sex the amount they are and the other person is not. Um, now, of course, everyone again has different variability and even of like how often you want to go out. Like like in partnerships, it's usual that one partner's like, oh yeah, she's the really social one and I'm kind of mm-hmm. happy to go home. So we shouldn't expect that libido is going to be perfectly matched anyway. Or one partner likes to sleep in a cold room with thick sheets and the other one likes to have a warm room with a thin sheet or completely naked, right? So the, the idea that people have to be matched is a bit of a mistake. And the second thing is, if only we talked more openly, we would have couples talking about it very early on when they're not just in the honeymoon phase and wanting to do it all the time. They'd be talking about like, yeah, how often do you masturbate? How often do you, are we kind of on the same page? Because I have so many couples who, you know, eight years into the relationship, uh, for example, if it's a heterosexual couple, I'll just make it kind of concrete. He might be like, I don't understand. You had such a high libido when we first met, you were ready to go all the time. And she's like, no, that was just because it was the early days of dating. We only saw each other once a week. So of course I wanted to every time then, but really I don't masturbate that much. And he's like, I didn't know that. So if people would only talk more, we would also get to see kind of, are they far apart to begin with or more closely aligned? But then the other piece is, I'm watching a lot of people have really crummy sex. No, sorry. Let me make that not so literal. I'm not watching them. I'm hearing about it, but (laughs) I'm watching a lot of couples come in. And when they, when I asked them to give me the play by play of, of how does sex work for the vast majority of my couples. And of course it's a bias sample coming in for sex therapy, but they are having sex at the end of the night when they're exhausted, after they've brushed their teeth, washed their face, put on their pajamas, laid in bed, geared up for sleep. And now they're trying to like, you know, rub each other, like the genie in the magic lamp, hoping something will appear. And so they're having it at the wrong time. They're doing it in the same order. They're not even undressing each other anymore. They both just, you know, rip off their clothes, lie there naked and are trying to get from zero to a hundred in a moment. They do everything in the exact same order. The dog is sitting panting at the edge of the bed. The laundry is sitting there and it looks horrible. You know, the, the, the sex that they're having is not very desirable. I don't want it. And so I think sometimes what happens in those desire discrepancies is one person doesn't want the sex because the sex is not very good. The Netflix show is way more entertaining. And the other partner wants it because they feel so rejected. They feel so unloved. And it's not even anymore about sex because they could just masturbate and have their orgasm that way. It really is that they're feeling like, okay, like, why don't you want to have sex with me? But the question is more, why would you expect someone to have that want that kind of sex? Because that kind of sex kind of sucks. And so sometimes when we help them have better sex, that desire discrepancy starts to shrink. And when one person doesn't feel hounded and the other person doesn't constantly feel rejected, that makes a big difference. Other times there is just a baseline difference, just like in the temperature of your room at night. Oh, I love the way you said that. Yeah. And I think 
I think too, when you, when you break it down like that, it makes sense. It's like, okay, well let's figure out how, like what's happening here. What is our sex life like? And, and when you said about the, it goes in the same order and you do the same thing. Yeah, it can get, um, I think one of my sex coach friends calls it maintenance sex, quote unquote. <laughs> yes. So yeah. I, I actually really like that term because I think it's, yes, sometimes maybe it's fine, but other times you're like, oh my gosh, I want to do something different. Like mm-hmm. let's go in a different part of the house or let's try out a new position. Let's try out a new toy. Let's try out some lube, whatever the case may be. And I think, yeah, it's like, you get to switch it up. And it, and I think yes. expressing that, like being like, hey, babe. Absolutely. And I know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard uh, sex with Emily, um, Emily Morris. I'm sure you're familiar yes, with her, of course, yeah. her podcast. Um, she actually just wrote a book that came out today, funny enough. Um, so she always says, do not talk about sex in the bedroom. Like if you're having like a discrepancy or something that you don't like or like or whatever the case may be is don't have it in the bedroom do you agree with this yeah I do Uh, in general you know if couples are really great at communicating and they actually can communicate about hot sex in the bedroom go for it but in general what I'm seeing in 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 my clients is that after sexual experience where one person feels like oh my god uh, that was not great and the other person can feel it and be like you were disappointed to then have a conversation where you're pairing it with the sex you just had is going to make it the next time around you are dreading it you know that is not the moment to discuss it it is when you know everyone is dressed and and things are more neutral and it can be like hey babe you know what I'd love to have next time and kind of bring that enthusiasm in so that it's creating anticipation for the next time rather than a negative memory yeah. Oh, I love the way you said that. Um, now, if, you know, if someone is kind of going through some sexual shame, they're struggling with it, they kind of, they're at a loss. They're like, I don't know what to do. Obviously, we have therapists. Um, you know, what are some other resources that someone can um, use in, in case they're kind of going, you know, struggling through this? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, sex therapy, unfortunately, is not cheap. So fair enough. The fact that your listeners are even listening to your podcast already puts them ahead of the game, right? Because as they're listening to this, their shame is coming down as they see that they're normal, not not just from today, from all of your episodes. Um, And you've had you had Serena on your podcast, and she's fantastic and talking about things with enthusiasm and stuff. So I mean, I think the reality is the more people can have exposure to role models of positive sexuality, open sexuality, consensual sexuality, all of that is going to make a difference. So listen to the podcast, follow on Instagram, Emily Morrison, all these great people, Serena Haynes and all these people, you know, just get exposure because we have to combat the opposite, which is the shaming of our sexuality and the non-expression and non-talking about it by actually making sure we have a good dose of it in our regular lives. Um, books, there's some awesome books out there or now again, the audio books, all of that, I would say, if you can't afford seeing a sex therapist, the great news is there's lots of stuff. You know, I always love Brene Brown. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown or your listeners might not, but Brene Brown is one of the most famous researchers out of Austin, Texas on shame, not specific at all mm-hmm. to sexuality. And she has this quote that I just absolutely love and I reference it a lot. And, I, and, and her quote is, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Silence, secrecy, and judgment. Isn't that exactly what we do with sex, right? We don't talk about it. It's all secret and private. And we judge people to be too sexual or whatever it might be. But then she says, uh, her, her line after that is, shame cannot survive being spoken and being met with empathy. And in some ways, that's what my job is. My job is to help people to talk about it and to be empathic and non-judgmental. And that does so much good. So the more people can talk, talk with their girlfriends, talk with their guy friends, whoever, the more people can have exposure to it. That's going to help their shame and their comfort tremendously. Yeah. And just, yeah, just trying to be vulnerable. I think that's something that I've also talked about a lot is because I find that when you are vulnerable, you kind of break down the wall. Maybe it's intimidating or it's a little scary to talk about this with whomever. Uh, But I find that when you do it, it almost is like, okay. I, I got to that point. Okay, maybe next time I hang out with them, I can talk about it a little more. And you kind of slowly gain some like traction to this is okay to talk about as long as the other person is receptive, obviously. And 
is comfortable with you sharing this information, I find that it's, it can be really rewarding to be vulnerable. I really yeah. do believe that. I agree. I mean, if you think about it, the things that we are most afraid of, whether that's skydiving or talking about sex openly, those also become our best memories. They become the things that we connect most with uh, with other people about. So totally agree with you. I love it. Um, any last kind of thoughts about sexual shame before we kick off our game? <laughs> no, I would just say that, yeah, you know, whatever you think is is wrong about your sexuality, it's not, you know, there is not, it has been years and years and years since I've been shocked by anything. Uh, everything is normal and everything is explainable and understandable. Our brains have evolved to think about sexuality in ways that are perfectly healthy. Obviously behavior is not always healthy, but whatever you are thinking, uh, none of that is a problem. So I just hope that I, we can keep getting the message out there and love again that you've got this podcast and people listening to it, because I think that goes a long way to overcoming shame. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thank you for all the work you're doing, because clearly you are you are changing some lives in this world and some some sex lives. So we always <laughs> love that. That's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You ready for our game? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So the first one is, are you an early riser or night owl? I'm an early riser, 4.30 a.m. Oh, I love it. I respect <laughs> that. Uh, tacos or sandwiches? Oh, I love both, but sandwiches. I love good bread. Yes, so good. Um, do you prefer to dine in or take out? Um, I prefer to nowadays dine in. I've got a kid, so it's nice to get out and dine in somewhere. Yes, love that. The beach or the swimming pool? The swimming pool. I don't like sand stuck between my toes. I'm fussy. <laughs> I totally get that. Um, would you rather have eyes that film everything or ears that record everything? Ooh, ears that record everything. Love it. When you're traveling, would you prefer to travel somewhere brand new that you've never been to or traveling somewhere familiar? Oh, that is a tough one. Um, but if I have to choose, I'm going to right now say traveling somewhere familiar so that I'm guaranteed to have a good time. But I do also have a bunch of places new that I really do want to explore. That's totally fair. I love that. The next one is, would you rather give up all technology or give up TV, movies, and books? Oh, definitely all technology. I hate technology. I'm the worst at it. <laughs> <laughs> Happily would give it up. <laughs> You're like, here you go. Let's, let's kick it off. Uh, would you rather have to wear ball gowns every day for the rest of your life or wear swimwear every single day for the rest of your life? Oh, I would love to wear fancy ball gowns every day. That'd be so fun. <laughs> right? I really would. Uh, explore space or explore the sea? Ugh. Uh, everyone who knows me knows neither. Both both look cold and, and dark and not preferable. <laughs> but if I have to do one, I'm going to say the sea. There's a lot more interesting animals in the sea. <laughs> That's true. That is super true. Uh, would you rather have a new shirt in your closet every single day or a new pair of shoes in your closet once a week? A new shirt every single day. Mm, love it. Uh, would you rather create a new day of the week or create a new holiday? Oh, new holiday. New holiday. What would it be? Any it thoughts? would be go home and have great sex day. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love so that, that no one can say we didn't have time for it. Yes, that, yep, yeah, 100%. Uh, online shopping or in-person shopping? Um, oh, I have a hatred for both. Um, <laughs> uh, in-person, if it has proper lighting, mirrors inside the dressing room, and a staff member who will constantly bring me the right size that enough to wiggle back into my original clothes just to get the right size. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God, I could not agree with that more. There's nothing worse. <laughs> When then when you have to do that and put on your clothes and then go, oh, it's like, come on. It's I like the worst. <laughs> I like when stores have like the little button inside the dressing room that you can press and they come and they do it for you. Like, where is that store? I haven't been there yet. 
funny. American Eagle has that. Um, I, some Victoria's Secrets have that. Oh, That's another all I know. one in Vancouver, but interesting. Good to know. <laughs> I just yell really loud. <laughs> right, right. Um, the next one is, would you rather receive uh, plants or receive flowers? Oh, flowers. I wish I didn't kill every plant I owned, but I do. So flowers, then I don't feel bad. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> I love it. And then the last one is uh, sunrise or sunset. Oh, because I, oh, that is tough Um, because I think they are both equally beautiful, but because I'm up in the morning, I'm going to say sunrise. Yes. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh that was gosh. really fun. That's lovely. I'm surprised there was no sexual question in there. I was shy. I was yeah. waiting for, like, oh, what am I going to do as a I, professional when I get the this or that sexual question? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I always, I do have a lot of sexual questions, but you know, that's know. okay just, you saved me from having to be like do I answer this in case my clients are listening so that's perfect <laughs> that, that's fair that's totally fair oh my gosh well this was a freaking blast thank you so much for being here please let everyone know where they can connect with you yeah so I am on Instagram and it's Dr. Carolyn Klein uh, which is D-R and then my name has a strange spelling I don't know why my parents spelled it that way but Carolyn does not have an E on the end so it's C-A-R- O-L-I-N-K-L-E-I-N. Um, and definitely on Instagram, trying to challenge some ideas about sex. Or you can reach uh, me anytime at our office, which is the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy in Vancouver, BC. And our website is westcoastsextherapy.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And that's a wrap. I hope you guys enjoyed this wonderful conversation with Dr. Carolyn Klein. It was honestly so awesome talking with her. My cheeks hurt from smiling so much. I just absolutely love this conversation. Definitely learned something new and I hope that you did too. Definitely like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, all of the things so you never miss out on an episode. And please email me any topics or DM me, of course. Uh, my email is mynakedmindsetpodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to connecting with you. Okay, I love you all. Bye. Bye.